Welcome to Green Apple Pod, for people who want to think about education a little bit differently. I'm Jessica Enderlin-Natsum, a public school teacher and PhD candidate in education policy. I've spent nearly a decade observing and investigating how to make education the thing that's going to make our whole society happier and healthier. Now, I'm fighting to make that our reality. Welcome to Green Apple Pod, the Teacher Attrition Vortex, Part 2, an ed research primer. If you're still here after listening to our introduction, thank you. And we're excited to have you and share more information with you. As a quick recap, we spent most of our introduction discussing teacher attrition in relation to COVID-19, including early retirements, economics, and the overall morale. We even heard from a few former teachers who ultimately left the classroom as a result of the pandemic. One thing is really critical for everyone here to understand. Those teachers didn't leave just because of COVID. Ultimately, there were a lot of little things that slowly added up, contributing to their decision to leave teaching. Money, time, mental health, and school climate all contributed to their decisions. Today, we're discussing the teacher attrition crisis with a broader overview and getting into the education research background behind teacher attrition. What do the numbers say, and how can we interpret them? I mentioned a pretty big statistic in education in the first episode, and you've probably heard it before. That whole 50% of teachers leave in five years thing. For the record, that statistic is a couple decades old. But lucky for us, that same study has been updated by the original author, Dr. Richard Ingersoll, most recently in the 2018 report, Seven Trends, The Transformation of the Teaching Force. And we are so excited to say that the numbers are, drumroll please, kind of better. Apparently, now we're saying 44% of teachers leave the classroom within five years. So like, it's not worse, but it's also not like a whole lot better. Today, we're going to break down that statistic. Because in research and practice, it's important to look further and beyond the average. On average, 44% of teachers leave within five years. Okay, but what is average? Is that mostly urban schools, since most students in our country actually attend urban schools? Is that mostly rural schools? Is it low-income schools? Is it men? Is it Black, Indigenous, people of color teachers who are leaving? Is it private schools? We have to break that number down, because if we just say, oh, 44%, Any solution that we create is not going to have a sustainable plan behind it because we won't be fully informed. We're going to hear a lot from teachers throughout this whole series, but to be clear today, we're primarily hearing from researchers and school leaders who have seen this problem firsthand. I called each of them to get a lay of the land, starting with Dr. Caitlin Anderson, an assistant professor of education at Lehigh University. Dr. Anderson once worked in the corporate world before she shifted into education, first as a high school math teacher and later as a full-fledged academic. I asked her what she thought about the statistic where almost 50% of teachers leave the classroom, and this is what she had to say. When we talk about teacher attrition or teacher turnover or teacher shortages, it's very important to not just think about this as something that's only important or meaningful on average. And what we really might care about is what types of teachers are turning over, what types of teachers are trading, and from what context. 
because we know that in, you know, in particular, when we talk about teacher shortages, it's not as if there's a shortage of teachers overall. And, you know, in particular, it's a shortage of teachers for STEM teachers and secondary teachers, special education teachers. Dr. Anderson spent two years as a high school math teacher, but ultimately she left the classroom as well. Keep in mind, that's the very subject and grade level she mentioned as being a high turnover group, STEM, secondary. I actually asked her, what led to you leaving? And she told me that part of the reason she transitioned into higher education was due to the systemic inequity she saw in her own classrooms. I asked her for an example, and she described one that most teachers are unfortunately very familiar with. I mean, I think a lot of it to me comes down to sometimes you could tell the level of a class, meaning whether it was regular, and I'm using air quotes here, regular advanced AP based off of how the students in the classroom look. Um, And so you get this this sort of very clear picture of these racial inequities and how they're playing out in terms of access to certain types of opportunities in the school setting. That's, you know, that's one of the most stark and observable things. Dr. Anderson didn't like what she saw, so she decided to move into academia to try and do something about it. Now, her research focuses heavily on student discipline policies, which, interestingly enough, also overlaps with teacher attrition, as you'll hear in just a moment. Um, A lot of my uh, research has also been on student discipline and racial and ethnic disparities and and student discipline outcomes, for example. And I think that's, again, one of those situations in which it's very complex. There's a lot going on there. Um, And it's something that affects students clearly, but it's also something that teachers are struggling with. Right. And, you know, it might be one factor that can drive teachers out of the profession as well. To give some context here, student discipline is very relevant when we're talking about teacher attrition. Multiple research studies have shown that students of color and students with disabilities are disproportionately punished compared to other students. This can result in in in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, discipline, whatever it is. It is much more likely to happen to students who are students of color, students with disabilities, and low-income students. Now, these students also tend to attend more high-need schools with smaller budgets and more students in need of support. So how do you think teacher retention is going to be affected in these schools? Dr. Anderson had an answer for us. One thing that we know from my work as well as other people's work is that suspension rates and the use of exclusionary discipline is higher in schools that serve more Black students in particular. So there's a correlation between racial composition of the school and how exclusionary or severe their disciplinary consequences are. We also know that uh, students that are schools that serve a lot of uh, economically disadvantaged students, students of color in more urban settings that might be resource trapped in various ways also experience higher rates of teacher attrition and teacher turnover. So, you know, um, there's clearly a relationship there. We can't necessarily say anything causal, but the types of schools serving lots of our black and brown students in the U.S. are, are um, higher exclusionary schools and also probably um, having more challenges with retaining high quality teachers. Let's go back to that average we talked about just a minute ago. You know, 44% of teachers leave within five years. 
Based off what we just heard, do you think those scales tip towards urban and rural and low-income schools or suburban schools? If you said urban, rural, low-income, ding, ding, you are correct. Suburban schools have much lower ratios of minority students and much stapler levels of income in their communities. Unfortunately, urban and rural schools are much more likely to be classified as Title I schools, meaning that a substantial portion of the population is considered low-income, And as a result, the federal government will chip in to try to level the scales a little bit. As we're hearing now, teachers in these schools typically have higher attrition rates. They may not necessarily leave teaching forever, and they may actually just switch to a new school right up the road in a more privileged district. But either way, there are still students at the school that they just left. And now those students are much more likely to get another inexperienced or novice teacher for the rest of the year if they get one at all. Now, speaking of funding, like Title I funding, if the federal government is already chipping in, can't we just use that money to increase salaries and get more teachers into those tougher-to-staff schools? Maybe we can take that money and pay them more, and then all those teachers will just want to stay at these higher-to-work-in schools as opposed to moving to the suburban privileged district up the road. It doesn't really work like that. And even if it did Dr. Anderson cautions against simply increasing teacher pay scales to keep teachers in classrooms. According to her, part of the problem right now isn't necessarily the low pay. It is a problem, to be clear. It just isn't the source of the problem. It's how we pay. Because I think some people think, oh, if we just start paying all teachers more, that's going to somehow fix the problem, when really we have to be aware of sort of the nuances in terms of where the shortages are and why. Part of this comes down to you know, a tradition of paying teachers on a common um, scale that doesn't necessarily account for the differences in nuance in supply and demand in a particular area. So in some cases, you know, um, collectively bargained um, agreements with teachers unions would prevent a school district from paying a high school math teacher more, even if they really, really, really need to attract people to come teach high school math in that area. So some states have, you know, have enacted policies to help address some of those issues and trying to target shortage areas, both geographic um, of geographic need, but also in terms of content level need or specific grade level need. So being strategic, if we were to say use pay as a solution, being strategic about how that pay, is there any research on ways to strategically improve teacher pay? Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, some of the the research on this, um, and don't quote me right now, but I think it's a study by Plotfilter, Ladd, and Victor, I think, have a study on this. So there's there's some evidence that uh, it actually takes quite a lot of money to recruit teachers to stay uh, in what we might call hard to staff or um, relatively disadvantaged districts. So when we're thinking about how much more we might need to pay teachers to go work in a more diverse school, a more economically diverse school, that cost is actually quite significant. Uh, and I there's there's been some studies on this, and I'm um, I don't know the the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's 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 expensive, which is again the kind of my point about we can't it's not necessarily a solution that needs to be just everywhere we need to pay more because that's going to be very, very, very expensive. And what we really need to be thinking about 
are how do we address the inequities in terms of where teacher shortages are and where they have a hard time getting uh, quality teachers. To be clear, I realize this whole thing is a massive can of worms, which is probably why it hasn't changed recently. You try telling two teachers who teach in the same school but teach different subjects that they're about to get different pay scales based on what they currently teach. It would be a principal's worst nightmare to explain to the English department that, since there isn't nearly as much of a shortage there compared to math teachers, the math teachers are all about to get a pay raise. But realistically, we're having a hard time getting math teachers right now. Would some of them come to the classroom if they were paid at a higher rate? There are a few workarounds. So for example, I work in the state of Arkansas, and there are a few federal loan forgiveness programs targeted at teachers. One of these is called STEP, or the State Teacher Education Program, and it gave me three $3,000 loan forgiveness checks, so one every year for three years. You qualify if you teach a high-need subject, in my case, biology, or if you teach in a school in a geographic location that struggles to attract teachers, you know, my first school, which hadn't had a biology teacher in a year. While this was encouraging for the first few years of teaching, that maximum three years of forgiveness, and to be clear, that nine grand was only like a drop in the bucket. But after a while, that aid dries up. And what happens next for most teachers? Do they stay just because they're so grateful for nine grand and because they've fallen in love with teaching over three years? Or do they wait three years and then they go? Now, back to that compensation to keep teachers in schools. Let's say we don't want to pay different teachers different rates of pay based on what subject they teach. Okay, well, what if we pay teachers based on the quality of their work? How well are they doing? Would higher pay for better work retain really good teachers, those high-quality teachers, the teachers you would want as a kid, the teachers you want your kids to have as a parent? And then how do we help those teachers who need support? If you're a teacher who's listening to this and already shaking your head and going, no, 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 I completely expected that. Teacher evaluation practices typically don't go over well at all. There has been a big push in the past 10 to 15 years to tie pay to performance, and overwhelmingly, it has been completely rejected. And there's a pretty obvious reason why. Teachers are worried that they will be unfairly judged for things that are beyond their control. So for example, what if my pay as a teacher was tied to test scores and only half of my students got the acceptable score, whatever it was. Um, only half of my students got a B or above on the test. Does that mean I get a pay cut because the other half didn't get at least a B? But what if half of my students are English language learners? What if a bunch of them entered high school on a third grade reading level? For a lot of teachers, especially teachers who teach students who have been disadvantaged for so long, it is terrifying to have your work not only evaluated, but to be punished if you don't do your work well enough based on things that you can't control. So I asked Dr. Anderson about teacher evaluation programs and how they currently operate, and this is the summary that she gave me. Teacher evaluations in general traditionally have been very satisfactory in the sense that almost, you know, 99% of teachers are rated as effective. Mm -hmm. um, which is not, it, it, that's changed somewhat with more of these, you know, high stakes evaluation um, systems like in, in Michigan, but it's still often the case that it's 
very few, it, it's, it's relatively uncommon to see low teacher evaluations. All right. So if all teachers are doing so well on teacher evaluations, then why are they so worried about it? Well, there's a few things to unpack here, and here's the quick version. Every teacher knows another teacher who has a horror story about a principal unfairly evaluating them, and no one wants to end up in that situation. And if everyone is getting satisfactory ratings, but our schools aren't ensuring that all students are getting satisfactory results, where's the disconnect here? I could go down this rabbit hole for days, but you're here to talk about teacher attrition. So let's keep going down that trail, and maybe we'll address this in a future season. Now, in the meantime, if teachers are so opposed to evaluation programs tied with pay, why am I bringing this up on a podcast about teacher attrition? Well, what about teachers who leave because they aren't doing well or they think they aren't doing well? Could we have kept them in the classroom if someone had been in their room to evaluate and support them? What if evaluation systems aren't necessarily tied to cutting teacher pay or punishment but instead all about supporting struggling teachers and empowering them to do their best work. Now, according to the research, most teachers leave within their first one to three years. And again, based on that research, they are also worser teachers then. Now, before I get all this hate, I don't say that as in they are horrible, terrible teachers, but statistically teachers do improve dramatically in their first three years. They are better in their second year than their first, and they are better in their third year than in their second, and then they slowly start to level off, which makes sense. Teaching is a job where you are learning as you go. You can't learn the art and science of teaching from a book. You have to practice it, and that takes time. But unfortunately, a lot of teachers get frustrated in those first one to three years, and they're struggling with instruction, and they're struggling with classroom management, and if they don't get support to improve, they might leave. Dr. Anderson brings up teacher evaluation systems as one method to let teachers know that we want them to stay and so that we can tell them they're doing a good job, but also so that we can help improve those teachers who really want to be there, but think, I'm not good at this. I shouldn't be doing this. Now, according to a lot of teacher surveys, teachers leave when they don't feel supported throughout their struggles in the classroom. So what if this is the key? What if instead of changing the pay, which does need to be changed, but not specifically to address the problem, that's a whole nother podcast, we'll get there later. But what if instead of that, to fix this problem, we focused more on a positive support system that evaluates and coaches teachers to improve them and make them feel more supported and more likely to stay? So I think, again, you know, if, if, Done well, I and you know, an ideal policy would identify a set of teachers who need more supports, who need more mentoring, coaching, um, whatever it might be to improve without there being some fear of losing your job without a chance to improve. And I think, you know, if designed well, that's what evaluations are intended to do. I think what happens in practice often is that people are very, very, very busy. And so if you're not taking the time to actually use the evaluation in a formative way to help figure out, okay, how do we support our teachers better? And it's only used as an accountability tool, then that's where I think that fear can kind of come in. So I think at that point, it really comes down to the leadership of the building and the district in terms of how they message 
what these evaluations are for, how they're going to be used. So that it's not just a, you know, a way of removing low-performing teachers without a second chance or without an opportunity to improve. Dr. Anderson points out another key caveat to this. If we were to use teacher support systems as a mechanism to support teachers and keep them in classrooms, there would have to be some work on the front end. Principals would, or other evaluators and coaches would have to be trained in how to do this and make sure it's done properly. That's not free. That takes a lot of time. We will talk a lot about coaching teachers and supporting teachers and evaluating teachers in later episodes of this podcast. But I'm going to go ahead and transition now as we finish up Dr. Anderson's interview. In every interview I do, I always give people the chance to, you know, basically say anything that I may not have asked him about that they think is critical context. And Dr. Anderson, being the wonderful, well-rounded academic that she is, had this gem, which perfectly pivots into our next speaker. And here's what she had to say. You know, I was talking about, you know, what types of teachers are we recruiting and retaining and thinking about not just any teacher, but like, well, who are the types of teachers that we we want to keep in? Um, I haven't done a lot of work in this area yet, but I think another thing to kind of keep front of mind there is that when we're talking about teacher quality, it's really important to include in that teacher diversity because there is a ton of evidence now on the benefits of teachers with a similar racial or ethnic background, particularly for Black students. Um, but for all students, right? And so I think we need to think about how do we, um, again, conceive of teacher quality as more than just, you know, value added or test scores or licensure or years of experience, right? Which are all, um, you know, not perfect measures uh, or at least not all comprehensive measures and thinking about, you know, the importance of teacher diversity in that as well. So it's, you know, it's an area of work that I'm hoping to do more work on in the future. And there's um, some great people out there doing a lot of research on the, you know, on the teacher race match literature as well. And so thinking about, you know, making sure that we include um, teacher diversity when we're talking about teacher quality. Dr. Anderson's point is critical. If we're really concerned about teacher retention and teacher quality, we have to talk about teacher diversity. It's good for all of our students. It's good for our society. But can we really dive into that 44% statistic if we don't examine this all through a racial ethnic lens? The answer is no. There are distinct trends for recruitment and retention for teachers of color, and not talking about them makes it impossible to address them. This gives us a perfect segue to our next expert, Dr. Rob Connor. Dr. Rob Connor, I am um, currently serving as the uh, founding uh, head of the Christine Sykes Academy, which is a pre-K through eight uh, independent school in uh, Trenton, New Jersey. Dr. Connor got his PhD in education leadership and policy from the University of Pennsylvania in 2011. And fun fact, his doctoral advisor was Dr. Ingersoll, the same Dr. Ingersoll who calculated that 44% statistic. When a mutual colleague of ours heard that I was doing this project, she actually connected me to Dr. Connor for that very reason. Um, she said you had, you were under Dr. Richard Ingersoll. Um, yep. He was your advisor. And yep. so this whole podcast is about teacher attrition. And so I was mm -hmm. like, well, then he's going to know because your advisor's anything like my advisor, you get exposed to 
all of their interests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So a good advisor does, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and so I read most of your dissertation and it was extremely interesting. And so the niche that I'm hoping you can fill for us here is the second episode really goes into that research behind teacher attrition. You know, what are the numbers like? Where are they leaving? Why are they leaving? Mm-hmm. But I think it's really critical to address what you addressed in your dissertation, which is what does this look like for minority teachers, specifically African-American teachers? Because if we just look at the aggregate, we're missing the entire perspective there. Uh, Richard Ingersoll is um, uh, an amazing uh, researcher and uh, really kind of uh, framed research around uh, teacher retention and attrition in a very interesting way. One thing to know about him um, is that he was a former educator. And so his understanding of not just uh, the examination of statistical trends, larger statistical trends, but also how to kind of create those, uh, take those trends and then adapt them so they have real application and connection to what actually goes on in schools was pretty unique. And um, uh, certainly how I got interested in the set of questions that I pursued for my dissertation. Basically, Dr. Connor was in the room where it happened. He was getting to learn firsthand about teacher recruitment and retention from the leading expert on it, but he took it a step further in his own way and began examining not just why teachers leave, but why black teachers leave. Uh, My dissertation was looking specifically at African-American teachers. When I talk about it, I often kind of level up slightly just to talk about um, minority teachers or teachers of color. And uh, really, I, I did that analysis and built off of Richard Ingersoll's work. And so he had created a a wonderful model of looking at and examining teacher attrition, retention, turnover, and then looking at its implication as it relates to the uh, specific variables organizationally that can increase likely turnover um, or retention in schools. And so building off of his model, um, I completed a statistical analysis. I won't go too much into that. I don't want any people's eyes to glaze over. Basically, what I found is that when you look at um, teachers of color in particular, in particular, more specifically in my analysis, African-American teachers, what you find is that while there's a tremendous focus, and there had been at that point, and I think there still is, in the recruitment and in expanding the pipeline of teachers of color, expanding the pipeline of African-American teachers going into schools, um, what my analysis showed and ultimately his, his subsequent analysis showed is that the recruitment programs were actually, have actually been very successful. And so they've increased the numbers of people of color going into the teaching profession. Uh, and while those numbers don't necessarily reflect uh, the numbers of students, the population of students of color in schools, they have shown to increase, uh, a significant increase in the number of people of color going into the teaching profession. Now, what happens when they get there, though, obviously, is that uh, what you find is that teachers of color, generally speaking, end up in the most complicated educational circumstance. High um, schools with high numbers of not just students of color, but also high numbers of very challenging circumstances, high poverty schools, schools that are going through significant leadership changes consistently, schools that have very high uh, rates of disciplinary challenges, And when you look at the number of teachers of color who actually stay, what you find is that despite the recruitment efforts, 
and the fruit that that has uh, come as a result of those efforts, uh, we're losing anywhere between 30 to 60,000 uh, of our teachers of color annually as a result of organizational dynamics, such as lower autonomy. And you look at a, a specific variable like that, and what you find is that minority teachers, when they go into the profession, um, they have, I think, high interest in making a change, uh, in connecting with kids. And when you strip away their autonomy, they're more likely to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, you also find that teachers who have real uh, challenges uh, with leadership often also leave uh, very consistently. And so um, my analysis, to boil it down, uh, really showed that for African-Americans specifically, but for teachers of color, uh, it's the organizational dynamics that in some ways are impacting the larger number of teachers who remain in the profession. Okay, let's review. Number one. We're getting better at recruiting black teachers into teaching programs. Number two, typically those teachers have an intrinsic motivation or a passion for teaching. They want to make a change in the world. Three, once they get there, we see that black teachers face a variety of organizational structures that may churn out as many as 60,000 black educators every single year, leaving the classroom. That's a problem because once you've gone through the trouble of getting licensed and employed, where do you go? Furthermore, what about the kids? That puts a deeper dent in the already dwindling supply of teachers. We also know from a growing pile of research that both black and white children benefit from having a black teacher. Black students benefit from having a teacher with a similar background and white students benefit from experiencing more diversity in their education. Now, according to one report by the Learning Policy Institute, black teachers leave, whether changing schools or leaving teaching altogether, at a higher rate than white teachers, leaving a vortex of new and novice teachers to fill in their place. This might be because black teachers are already more likely to work in disadvantaged schools, which experience higher turnover already, as well as the organizational factors Dr. Connor mentioned earlier. The tough working conditions, the lack of autonomy, the difficult relationships with leadership, all of these things can contribute to turnover. But they aren't the only factors. I think you're seeing a lot of... Um work done on uh, teachers' responses to microaggressions from colleagues as well. And I think that's a good thing, right? So if you're one of only a few teachers of color in an environment where you're uh, kind of asked to do heroic work on the part of students of color, yet you're working with uh, a predominantly white um, group of colleagues, obviously you're gonna run into some challenges. And it doesn't mean that those challenges are insurmountable, but how do we create environments where colleagues can really talk about the dynamics of race and student achievement? So it's not just leadership. It's the community as a whole. A teacher of color shouldn't be entirely responsible for hosting the, quote, woke talk about race. We're going to talk a lot about burnout in future episodes, and this is a recipe for burnout and demoralization to put all of that work that, quote, heroism on one or a few people. Ultimately, this can result in a lack of opportunity for folks who are passionate about education and change. And it's the result of assumptions and a failure to deeply evaluate and understand the situation. This lack of opportunity is inequitable, and it drives hardworking and passionate teachers out of the classroom. The other interesting thing that came out of the analysis, that I think is the thing that's less discussed still, is that um, African-Americans, and in particular teachers of color, 
tend that that concentration of African Americans in the most complicated educational circumstances, people often only assume that if I'm a teacher of color, that I want to teach in that kind of environment. I think in general, that's true. There's a lot of research, as you know, about teacher match and the connection that, that teachers of color have with the opportunities to teach students of color. However, one has to ask a, an interesting question when you see kind of these large concentrations of teachers of color in the most hard to staff schools, and that is whether or not they have the same opportunities to teach elsewhere. And so whether or not we believe that um, teachers of color are good for students of color, I think they are. Uh, whether or not we believe that they actually are able to impact student outcomes, which I think they can and do, you still want every teacher to have equitable opportunities to teach wherever they want. Because what we know is that not just, you know, minority students need teachers of color, but white students need teachers of color too. And if those opportunities aren't the same, then that raises a whole host of additional questions that have what I think are, are real deep historical roots and, and legacies as it relates to opportunity in the employment sector. I think that's another interesting detail. And what you find is that Black teachers, uh, teachers of color tend to rotate when they do leave schools within the same kinds of schools, which I find just fascinating. Okay. No, I think I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's critical to the attrition point, whether it's they're leaving schools completely or just turning over, moving to a new school or district. It's mm -hmm. when people don't have opportunity, that's when they leave an industry. And Absolutely. because a lot of people like me, white people will leave mm -hmm. a school that's maybe a little more difficult and then mm -hmm. go and find another school that may be less difficult. Mm -hmm. So they're at least still in education. But if mm -hmm. you can't do that at all, then you're going to go maybe to another industry. So maybe that contributes to that. Would you say 30 to 60,000 teachers a year? When I said can't do that at all, I was talking about people who don't have the opportunity to go somewhere else and those people who may be more likely to leave teaching altogether. Because not everyone can just move to another school. Teacher attrition is a big issue. 44% of teachers leave within the first five years, yada, yada, yada. But most of that 44% isn't leaving the most desirable schools. And those schools, which tend to have the most desirable working conditions, are incredibly difficult to get into without a personal connection to someone on the inside, an advanced degree, years of experience, teacher of the year award, whatever it is. Teachers in those schools don't leave until they retire or, no, that's pretty much it. And that makes it really difficult for a novice teacher or a newer teacher to move into them. So if you're already struggling with teaching because you have difficult working conditions or a difficult boss or whatever it is, and you don't believe you have a good chance of transitioning into that other more desirable school, chances are you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to buck up and accept the career in the more high need school, or you're going to leave teaching altogether. And that's where we expect teachers, especially teachers in high need schools and teachers of color, to be so resilient and passionate about their work that they will do it no matter what. I mean, I remember my first teaching experience and, and I was, I don't know, I was young and I was teaching high school kids. They looked older than me. And, and um, I, I think we depend on resilience, mm -hmm. you know, and this notion of teacher courage and strength in ways that, you know, no other industry depends on, right, as being the primary marker of whether or not people are going to stay in the profession. That's a problem, right? We want, we want skill. We want passion. We want interest to be the primary drivers. Uh, of retention. Exactly. 
In the decades since Dr. Connor published his dissertation, he's gotten excited about some other new research on teacher attrition. Not just who is leaving and how many people are leaving, but why are they leaving? And so I know it's been about a decade now since your dissertation. Are there any yeah. um, major changes you've seen that have helped with that or any that you think may be harmful to that, that people should know as they're trying to fix the problem going forward? Yeah, I think I think what you see now are really interesting studies that really get into the dynamics of what I would say um, classroom teacher experiences, in particular teachers of color experience in schools. So you, you're now seeing things and studies that I think are awesome where, where people are starting to examine the relationship between someone who comes into the profession wanting to help, say, students who share a similar background and experience and what leadership needs to offer and do in support of that kind of individual. And so anytime we see kind of teachers leaving because of leadership issues, generally it's because that person goes into the profession and doesn't, isn't able to really execute on their vision uh, for service. And so we're starting to see a lot of research, uh, qualitative research, where we're capturing the voices of teachers of color and, and their experiences. It's beneficial that we're starting to look at teaching and teacher diversity in this way. We're realizing that if we want to keep teachers, especially teachers of color and especially good teachers, we have to support them. Now, just so you know, this is where the dialogue of the interview just got good. So just sit tight for the next four to five minutes. This is completely unedited, stream of conscious, how the interview went. Also, just for clarity's sake, when I mentioned Tina, that's our mutual colleague. She does some work on preparing teachers to take their licensure tests so that they can go and get licensed. You know, I, I think this idea of opportunity has been started to, people are starting to pick away at that. In other words, people are recognizing the opportunity to kind of set teachers of color up not to be heroes, right? Uh, but setting them up to be in sustainable career paths where they're not burning out in the first two years because they're asked to being asked to do everything uh, in support of, say, the most challenging students and families in a given school setting. And so I think people are being much more um, intentional and you're starting to see some qualitative studies around those, those particular details. Yeah, no, and those are excellent points to bring up um, about the kind of literature that's coming out because, I mean, like I said, your dissertation is 10 years old. None of this information is new. We've known it, but now we're starting to break down less about the what it is and why it is that way. Mm, that's right. And so hopefully once we nail that down, we can start fixing it. <laughs> and, and getting away, you know, like, no, absolutely. And the, the large statistical trends are important. They simply capture the framework, but then you got to get into the hood. You got to dig really deeply and you got to capture the voices of, of people who are, who are working in these spaces. The one thing I'd say too, is there's a lot of more organizations that are focused on not just the recruitment aspects of teachers of color, but helping them build networks of support and communities of practice. And I think that's a big deal too. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, I've watched Tina do quite a bit. And I'm just like, this is fascinating stuff. Like how you were building this from the ground up. It's, yeah, and it and it's great. I mean, I think it helps the pipeline, but it's also then, like you said, making sure once they get there, let's keep you here. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Let's keep you satisfied. And then also, let's be honest. I mean, you know, if, if you are a person of color who's coming out and has a certain degree set, 
they have probably more options in the workplace, not just in schools, but beyond schools. So we have to also be honest about that uh, as an as a way of just kind of acknowledge that they may not be, you know, teachers of colors may not ever get to the point where they're staying in schools for 25 years. Um, there's leadership opportunities, there's policy opportunities, there's things that you're doing that they should have opportunities to do as well to impact larger swaths of students uh, and families. So, Absolutely. That's, we want all of those opportunities available to everyone, but we mm -hmm. also have this balance of, we want you to have opportunities but we also would like some of you to stay so that we can have everyone teaching us enough teachers as well. And that's yeah, especially the side of the coin I'm seeing from interviews. It's like, I get why you left. I think it's great for you. But what does that mean about the systemic way that teaching is now that we have to improve it to actually make it appeal to people to stay? Mm -hmm. I think that's I think that's so important. In other words, let's not concede turnover. Mm -hmm. You know, let, let's think about the benefits. Let's think about the working conditions. Let's think about the pay. Let's think about all the factors that can ensure that we really um, make it a profession that people can devote themselves to. But, I mean, there's all these little things that we know they just make a huge difference, right? When you're working so hard um, to ensure that every kid gets the opportunity that they deserve. And so it shouldn't be pastoral work. In other words, it should be heart work. We don't have to sacrifice every last thing uh, and concede that that um, you know our not only our our um, we have to give up you know our time and and our energy, but also give up ourselves in a way that's just not healthy. Okay, a lot to process and unpack here. Shortly after this part of the conversation, we said our goodbyes and got off Zoom. Dr. Connor to go manage his school amidst a growing surge of COVID cases across the country, me to an endless day of dissertation edits, lesson planning, and podcast writing. But I hope you got the important parts out of that conversation. Teaching is hard, and it shouldn't be work just driven by passion and resilience. It should be sustainable, and we can make it that way. We can use data, we can use research, we can do all of these things to make teaching what it needs to be to balance the scales so that teaching is appealing in all environments, not just in those desirable schools that I talked about earlier. Attrition of teachers isn't new. Dr. Ingersoll first started researching this over 20 years ago, and it was happening well before then. But we're currently living through a major event in time that may exacerbate the attrition problem. If we don't want to see even more teachers leave, giving even more students a void in their classroom, what do we need to do? If we want a more diverse teaching force, what do teachers of color need to feel affirmed and to do sustainable work in their schools? How does all of that fit together? Today, you got the Ed Research Primer. We talked to experts in the field about teacher retention. We broke down that 44% figure to better understand some of the causes of attrition and why we can't just throw money at the problem, such as through blanket raises. We talked about the importance of diversity in the teaching force and some of the systemic barriers that make this even more difficult. Next week, we'll zoom in and hear from someone dealing with the attrition crisis at the local level. Specifically, what is it like trying to recruit teachers to your school when there's very few teachers to be found? Then we'll hear from two former teachers who just wanted to teach. But ultimately, both of them got shut out of the system due to unfortunate 
but not uncommon circumstances. Thank you for listening today. This has been Green Apple Pod for people who want to think about education a little bit differently. We'll see you next week. The most important element of these stories is the lived experiences of teachers and education stakeholders. To share your perspective or to give feedback on this episode, please leave a voicemail or text message at 334-472-4019. You can also send a message through our website, passiontoprogress.com slash contact, or direct message our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This has been Green Apple Pod, hosted by Jessica Enderlin Natsum and produced by Ruth Amundsen. If you would like to follow along and learn more, please subscribe to our host organization, Passion to Progress, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. We are available for listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean.